Interest rates are on the rise, inflation's up, an iceberg lettuce now costs $10. Household debt is the biggest it's ever been. We have a whopping deficit. Petrol is about to go through the roof again. And the most recent property boom is over. This sort of talk kills consumer confidence and erodes the wealth effect, even if our home is worth more than it was a year ago and we're 22 months ahead on our mortgage repayments. And we have a housing affordability crisis with a growing severity amongst low-income earners and in regional areas, even if you have a well-paying job, you could struggle to find a rental. It seems that we're in an impossible situation. Is it even possible for housing to be affordable without causing a price crash? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxdale's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecast report, which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Our guest today has been dubbed the Freddy Krueger of economics by Peter Switzer. We've featured him in at least two of our very own full or forecaster reports. He's probably most famous or infamous in property circles for predicting 40% price falls. Steve Keane has previously been Professor of Economics at Kingston University, London and the University of Western Sydney, Australia. However, he's now vocal in his opposition of the way universities teach economics. And today we'll discover that there is more to Steve Keane than perpetual forecasts of a property crash and the well-publicised loss of a bet. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. I hope you don't mind the introduction. We are very much looking forward to talking to you. This has been a long-awaited and uh, we've had a few aborted attempts. So thanks for joining us. Good to be here. I just hope the sound holds up. It hadn't been hassles beforehand, but it seems okay now. So let's see how we go. Especially for joining us from the other side of the world. So I really appreciate you coming on, Professor Steve. I mean, you've uh, Veronica mentioned in the intro there, um, I guess your frustration with the universities and the way they teach economics. I mean, it's a big question. I mean, what's your sort of views around that at a sort of bigger level and, and what should we be doing? Well, frankly, the economics we teach, uh, we'd be better off teaching students uh, uh, fairy tales than what they learn in economics <laughs> courses. And uh, I'm happy to offend economists on this because uh, I think their fairy tales are actually going to uh, bite us most dramatically over climate change because they're t- t- talking fairy tales about the impact of climate change as well. But we, we need an f- approach to economics which is physically realistic and grounded in money, and we have neither. We have a model of the economy where you put labour and capital inside a factory and goods come out the other Mm. end with no input of energy or raw materials, which would be a really nice thing if we could pull it off, but that actually is called magic. Yeah. Uh, And we have a model which assumes that banks' debt and money don't matter, so they ignore everything, which causes all the major dramas in a capitalist economy. Uh, But it gives uh, people a a belief they've got an inside knowledge that nobody else has and therefore they're specially privileged and their level of arrogance that economists have is off the scale. And uh, the result is we mismanage this economy into crises all the time and this one is the latest. I mean, we all go to economists to get expert opinions, right? The government does it. The government has advisory boards, etc. I mean, 
What's sort of the dangers of just, are we going to the wrong people? The trouble is most politicians, most journalists, most people in, in the public in that sense have had more exposure to economics than engineering, for example. So we have very few engineers in federal parliament. We have lots of economists, lawyers, uh, people who've done at least one, one year of economics in their degree anyway. So they accept economics as being correct and they then also assume, and frankly, I made the same assumption, they assume that in climate change, economists take the advice of scientists on what's going to happen to the climate and then work out the economic consequences of that. That is completely the opposite of what they've done. I'll give you my favourite, obviously stupid assumption they've made. Uh, and this, this permeates everything over the last 30 years, starting with William Nordhaus back in the 1990s. But he quite literally assumed that 87% of American industry, and therefore global as well, would be unaffected by climate change because it happens in what he calls carefully controlled environments. Mm. 87%. That meant all of manufacturing, wait for it, even all of mining, okay, all of wholesale and retail services, all of government activity and all of the finance, insurance and most of the real estate sector would be unaffected because it takes place in carefully controlled environments. Now, the only thing that everything excluding open-cut mining have in common from those various industries is they happen indoors or underground. So he basically thought, if you're not exposed to the weather, you're not exposed to climate change. Mm. That is brain-dead stupid. Anybody who made that should have been rejected <laughs> from having any role in the setting of climate change policy. Instead, because most economists are equally climate change trivialisers to Nordhaus, that got published in the Economic Journal, and since then, no one has considered uh, the impact on other industries apart from agriculture mm. and forestry and fishery. So all their predictions will be true if the weather is the only, uh, if only the only thing that changes temperature changes yeah. around the world. And they even all, they have all these models of their own models of the impact of climate change, and they leave out a little tiny factor called precipitation. Mm. So a 2021 paper admitted. <laughs> that every economic, what they call the integrated assessment model, IAM, every one of them only models temperature and leaves out precipitation. Yeah. Would you, would you say that so relates to the property market? It's normal, that's going to be good. I mean, Steve, would you say that relates to the property market a little bit? I mean, I, I sort of get frustrated. I mean, we all talk about what the market's going to do. I mean, that's, there's no such thing, I guess, but economists are out there perpetuating every day. The Australian property market's going to do something, or the Sydney property market, or the unit market in Sydney, et cetera. Um, or the NF focusing it on, you know, one factor like, you know, interest rates or borrowing capacity or migration, et cetera. Mm. Um, they try to link two different things in, into a, you know, a complex model. I mean, do you think that's what the issue with the property market is that, you know, people think about it too linear and, and, and you know, on two different, not enough variables, I guess? Well, they, they, they don't start from first principles. And this is what, what I've tried to do and say what actually determines demand for property. Okay. Now, the fundamentally different thing about property versus ordinary commodities is you don't buy your avocados by taking out a mortgage. Okay, um, so the fundamentally the demand, well, you don't live in an avocado. <laughs> the uh, the fundamental cause, the fundamental source of monetary demand for housing is mortgages, okay? and that means new mortgages help set the price level. Okay, so you divide the, the volume, monetary volume of of, uh, of mortgages by the number of properties for sale, you've got an idea of what the dollar price for the house is. So you can then find a relationship between change in new mortgages and change in house mm. prices. 
Now, this is ignored by mainstream economists because they assume that uh, all forms of lending are simply a transfer from Chris to Steve or Steve to Veronica, et cetera, et cetera, redistributing spending power without actually creating or destroying spending power. The real world is that when you take out a loan from a bank, it creates a debt for you and it creates the money at the same time. So when you put that into your factor, you find that this is a global phenomenon. The main determinant of change in house prices and change in the level of new mortgage debt. That applies to Australia, it applies to America, even though the, the actual pattern of house prices and mortgage debt are quite different. That causal factor is the same. So if you want to have a continuing rising house prices, you've got to have a continually accelerating in mortgage debt. And Australia has been the champions of pulling that trick off for the last four years. Uh, but we're running out of steam now. And what it's meant as well, of course, is that households have been driven into the second highest level of, of household debt on the planet after Switzerland. And actually a lot of that Swiss debt is actually business debt. Take out a business loan secured against your property. Very different to the Australian market. So on that front, we've got the highest level of household debt in the world. And yet we're trying to continue accelerating it. Now, of course, we see how fragile that is with interest rates. How do you measure household debt? Because, I mean, if you look at the total value of a property in Australia, which I recognise can go up and mm. down, it's, it's just shy of $10 trillion at mm. the moment. And the debt on that property is $2.1 trillion, mm. so roughly 21%, 22% or so. Um, is that how no. you're measuring household debt or are you measuring all the other no. bits of pieces that we go buying our television? Oh, no, I mean, I'm just debt. looking at the only d- decent data you can get across the planet is household debt, which aggregates personal debt as well as mortgage debt. Okay, But you look at the variability and personal debt doesn't vary all that much. You go back 40 yep. years, it was 10% of GDP. Come forward, now it's 10% of GDP. So most of the change occurs in debt to taking out property. Yep. And when I do that, and I do this for, and I'm looking at Australia's data right now, Look at the very, very different pattern to America, exactly the same correlation, pretty much. 0.6 is as a correlation coefficients. So it's, it's, it's that economists exclude this. They, they simply assume that the level of debt doesn't, accord, doesn't cause prices. And they also do what you did a moment ago and so the assets are worth so much more than their liabilities. Well, people were saying the same thing before the property crash in America in 2006. In fact, a good friend of mine made a fortune by selling his. Um, a credit card company to uh, Barclays at the time because the Barclays economist says, yes, okay, their debt's high, but their assets are much higher and that's a trade I'll take any day. So my friend promptly sold his credit card company yeah. to, to uh, I think it was in 2005 and, and made a killing um, because the asset prices collapsed. And this is what we, uh, we we're now starting to realise. So you're assets basically are saying... Liabilities. Yeah. Yep, sorry. Yeah, so the liability remains the same. It's two point. Tr- one trillion dollars, even if you shave twenty percent off the value, mm. um, yeah, I get, I get what you're saying. It's just that it's quite a small percentage in the whole in the whole scheme of things, so isn't it? It's not like it's sixty percent of um, that ten trillion dollars is debt. It's twenty, yeah. just over twenty. That's what leverage is all about. So, this, uh, you know, this is leverage. Well, wouldn't you? Wouldn't and you say, is, Steve, if everybody tried to realise those prices tomorrow, what would happen to them? So let's say, yeah. Um, yeah, we have, which is those stats Sorry. sort of, you know, I, I get there's a, you know, a lot of debt in the Australian economy, but that's assuming that we can't create more debt. I mean, you've got uh, 20 year olds going to university in 10 years' time, they have a partner and they, you know, want to have kids and, you know, they're earning a few hundred thousand dollars a year. Well, that's going to create more debt. You've got migration coming in, that's going to create more debt. You've got people in their 30s today that, you know, want to upgrade in the future, that's going to create more debt. You've got, um, you know, any type of new investing, that's going to be more debt. Um, people are renovating their homes, they can't afford to upgrade, that's going to create more debt. Um, 
the reality is it's, it's we may have a lot of debt and the people who are in a lot of debt um you know as a percentage you know they're they're probably if their properties have gone up in value let's say because they're in a lot of debt let's say they've got decent assets if they ever get themselves into a position where the debt becomes too much they can always sell and so the people who are under debt stress that's why i mean arrears is so low i guess is that you know the people if they do get themselves in a the problem they don't just wait till the you know the bank comes and asks for the keys back they'll just sell so What's your argument about that we can't just continue to create a lot more debt, you know, in our society? Because there's a lot of pent-up demand. There's a real need of shortfall of um, housing solutions, I guess. You've got to be able to service it. Okay. You've got to be able to service the debt. And this is what we're, we've been ignoring because we've been driving interest rates down for the last 20 years, 30 years, and driving up the level of debt and thinking you can continue doing it. Now, uh, you can do it to a certain point. Companies can turn over debt because uh, you know they're, they're making a profit on the on the availability of the money. Uh, households only can continue turning over the debt if they can find somebody who's going to borrow more than they did to buy the house off them. Now you're talking about borrowing out, taking out more debt. Uh, I'm looking at the numbers again right now. And Australia hit 120% of uh, GDP as the household debt level in about 2015. We're now at 2022, and it's 120%. It's risen from 40% back in the 1970s. So we've trebled the level of debt. Now, the world record in debt was Denmark, 150% of GDP, household debt level, back in about 2014. I'm sorry, you haven't got much headroom. What happened in Denmark? Has, have, have they had a crash yeah, yet? Have, I mean, are we looking at them as it's being... It's come back again because, as I said, it's, it's not the level of debt or the rate of... It's not the level of mortgage debt or the rate of change of mortgage debt. It's the rate of change of the rate of change of mortgage debt. And that's something humans have. And I've, I've got to admit, too, I have a hard time getting my head around it. Acceleration is very different mm. to velocity. Okay? You know how far you've walked, okay? You know that your speed's increasing, you, you, you know speed you're travelling at. Uh, your acceleration, you can be slowing down and slow down more slowly and therefore accelerate. And therefore, the, it, we get our minds get totally befuddled by it. And so I have to look at the actual numbers. Well, that's what we had. Yeah. That's what we had at the end of last year, the second half of last year in the property market. It was decelerating, but it was still um, speed. It was yeah, still yeah, increasing. So, but the thing is, though, and this is this is where I get a bit lost on this idea about. And I know we have a lot of debt. I get that, but you know, when you look at sort of what's happened through COVID and at the beginning of COVID, it was you know well sort of discussed that this is an equaliser of a, of a pandemic. You know, everybody has, uh, everybody has equal chance of getting COVID. As we discovered, as it has progressed, that that's not exactly true, that it actually, and financially as well, there have been people that have benefited through COVID or sections of our, our society that have benefited through lockdowns, et cetera, et cetera. And they tend to be the people that already own property. Uh, if you think about the middle classes in this country, you know, white-collar jobs, people have been able to continue working from home, haven't been able to spend any money on anything and have been able to squirrel away and, and pocket uh, some government stimulus but also their own earnings because they haven't had the opportunity to travel and do all the things that they'd normally spend money on. And then when you look at what's happened most recently in the property market up until our, our downturn this year, you, you've seen um, ridiculous growth fueled purely by owner-occupiers coming out of the gates of lockdown, wanting more space and having the wherewithal to um, to borrow, and in fact, not everyone, quite a, not even a, a not even more than fifty percent, I don't believe, actually borrowed to their maximum in that time. Now, when I say the maximum, you talk about affordability, and I get that we're talking in a, in a, 
environment of rising interest rates here. But we do have a situation in this country where there are a lot of people that are in great need. Tenant renters are really um, in an awful position at the moment. We've got first home buyers that are vulnerable because, of course, anybody who has bought their first property in the last two years is way more vulnerable uh, to this, their high levels of debt and obviously rising interest rates. But the vast majority of property owners in this country, I don't think necessarily fit in that category. And so when we're sort of talking in these blanket numbers, we're sort of, are we sort of um, at risk of dumping everybody in the same bucket and then applying the same rules? I mean, you, like you mentioned before, if the whole market had to be sold at once, it couldn't hold up its price. But the fact is that the market doesn't get all sold at once. And I can't even foresee any circumstances at which it would need to be. And then it's just a trade-off anyway, because then, you know, you've got to find 10 million more people to buy them. You know, do you get what I mean? I mean, I, I struggle to understand why household, and look, I'm not justifying household get debt, but I, I struggle to understand why it's so catastrophic or or, tip, or potentially catastrophic for us. So, and I'm, 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 sort of arguing with you, but at the same time, I really do genuinely want to understand. Okay. Well, the part you've got to start at is that credit is part of aggregate demand and aggregate income. And this is what everybody else gets wrong. It's only the non-orthodox economists that are aware of this, most people like myself and Richard Werner and so on. So what conventional economists think, and you're pretty much, you know, you don't, you don't actually quoting textbooks, but you, you're thinking would be in line with what economists think, uh, is that credit is to transfer a spending power from one person to another. So if you have a, you borrow money from somebody else, your spending power goes up. If you repay them, their spending power goes up and the two equalise each other and you can therefore ignore the level of credit as part of aggregate demand. Now, that's true if banks behave like the economic textbooks say they do. And I've been saying as part of a, a group of non-orthodox economists for 50 years saying the textbooks are wrong and people have ignored us. And then in 2014, the Bank of England came out and said the textbooks are wrong. Now, the economists are still ignoring the Bank of England. They're also ignoring the Bundesbank and a few other major conservative organisations who said that banks create money when they lend. They do not take money out of Chris's account and put it in Veronica's, which is what yeah. the textbooks argue. They put the money in Veronica's and put a matching yeah. debt against Veronica, and that money Veronica then spends that yeah. buying a house off Chris, okay, or whatever else. I totally get that, but if we all sat still and didn't bother borrowing or anything and just said, right, we're just going to all be happy in our homes and we don't need to buy well, or sell they, or borrow or anything like that. Well, if they lose their job, they might need to sell. And this is what happened in America in 2006. And for God's sake, let's remember something, okay, rather than just you know, this is all suddenly out of the blue and, you, you know, you can use, I mean, sorry, it's using asset to loan, asset to debt valuations to ignore what's happening now is ignoring what happened in 2006 when Americans did the same thing and collapsed into the biggest crisis. But do you think it needs something like that, doing Steve? The same like, thing I mean, here. Okay. higher interest rates will come down to serviceability and people who are struggling with the higher interest rates will potentially have to sell their properties and that will create more supply. You've then got people who want to live in those properties and yet you could see a repricing in properties, which we already are seeing, right? But to see a catastrophic collapse in prices do you think it needs to be a, a complete banking crisis a you know a debt crisis overseas no it, it just needs to be a large fall in credit-based demand like in america what happened in 2007 is demand went from credit went from 15 percent of gdp in 2007 to minus five percent of gdp and credit can be negative when you repay your debt or you go bankrupt and so on, from 20 15% to minus 20, minus 5, that's a 20% of yeah. GDP turnaround in demand. That's what caused the crash. Australia managed to avoid that 
because Kevin Rudd, uh, with the, stim- the whole stimulus package he threw in, including doubling and trebling the first-time owners yeah. grant, if you remember that, meant Australia didn't go into negative mm. credit. It went from about 30% of GDP to 2%. It didn't go negative. And we then boosted ourselves out of that. But that had the impact, of course, of a higher level of household debt. Now, can you continue playing the same game now? And what I'm saying is, unless you can find a way to continue household debt rising, if households start paying their debt down, you will get negative credit, and negative credit will cause people to lose their jobs, which feeds back on the housing market. And if you, if you do manage to avoid that, then good luck. You can continue going forward. But what it means is we're going to continue having more and more in So if you had to houses. sort of play out this downturn, Steve, I mean, Household. so we've... Um, some- obviously, the sharp increase in interest rates um, over the last few months and potentially for the next few months in, in particular um, has scared a lot of bu- uh, buyers, right? Because they've got no idea. There's no certainty on where interest rates are going to land. And secondly, there's a, a second hit to how much money they can spend, mm-hmm. you know, and that's really impacting people right now. We, we're having to reduce budgets for, for most clients. Um, yeah. but a lot of our clients are, uh, are stretching up to their limits. Um, you know, we've got like a high trajectory, high income young clients. Um but, you know, and, and so those things are happening. So if you had to play it out, you know, you know, do you see that there's nothing the government can do to stimulate demand? We're already talking around stamp duty changes. Look, I'm, I'm sick of the government stimulating demand in the house market, frankly. This has all <laughs> been a government, the government is caught yeah. up in a Ponzi scheme. And I've been sick of, you know, I mean, when I, that bet got pulled on me, um, I, I, I knew the house price was going to rise after that because... The government has doubled and yeah. tripled the first time owners grant. You'll find my comment on that preceding the bet that mm. Rory pulled on me at, at Parliament House. Uh, if, if the government, if the government pulled out all the bloody props, it's going. What do you reckon happened to the market? Get rid of negative gearing, okay? Get rid of first time owners grants, etc., to which I call first time vendors boosts, okay? Pull all the government adventures out. What happens to the market? Okay. Now, for Christ's sake, let's at least get that particular piece of realism yeah. into this conversation. So it's a yep. government-supported Ponzi scheme. Does the government have the capacity to keep on doing this indefinitely? Yes, it does, because the government can also create money. But to make it really work, it's got to encourage people into more household debt. Yep. Now, that's the last thing. But, I mean, I agree. Absolutely. There's, there's no doubt, right? The, the way to keep this Ponzi scheme, which I agree with you, is to create more people to enter the market, right? And But wouldn't that be in the government's interest, the banking yeah. sector, the development, the construction industry, the councils? Oh, yeah, look, it makes governments look great. This is, I've known from conversations with Treasury uh, economists over the years that the government didn't quite know why, but the, ever since, particularly since Keating, and this is back with the back in the 80s, by the way, um, they didn't know why it worked, but they knew they wanted to stimulate yeah. the economy, rising house prices helped. So a first-time buyer's boost was a great idea, okay? That was what was done by Keating after the yeah. 87 stock market crash. And you got a 30% increase in house prices the next year. And you got a boom that continued until the grant ran out and the, and the bubble ran out. And you then had the recession we had to have. But Howard dies back in with 2000 with doubling the first time owners grant for the sake of getting us to adjust to, oh, gee, the huge shock of bringing in the GST. What was the most of the value of six months stimulus was 10 months because, Jesus, Australians mm. take a long time to get over a change in the tax fucking level. Pardon me going French here, but it just, I'm irritated that, <laughs> you know, the, the Jesus out of myself yeah. over this stuff over time. And then 2007 run does the same thing. So you keep on doing it, but it had to it work, to continue working, you've got to have that yeah. rising level of household debt. Now, that was enabled by falling interest rates. Now we've got inflation running at 6 to 8% for reasons that have nothing to do with, not nothing, but almost nothing, well, less to do with aggregate demand than they have with the cost of supply these days, cost of manufacturing. 
and that's therefore meaning that the low interest rate game is over and therefore you've got the interest rates going up at a time that Australians are carrying almost historic levels of household debt. So the government is going to find it rather hard to thread that particular needle so this time around. Assuming that interest rates continue to go up long term, you think that that's finally the end to any housing boom and, and we're in for some massive crash. But if interest rates stabilise, which is, you know, the market's just overnight, they've just sort of basically said um, that they thought the, you know, the RBA rate would get closer to five and, you know, no economist in the country thought that. But, um, and now the, you know, the markets are saying they're only going to go up to 3%, you know, because of, you know, central bank impacts um, and changes all around the world. I mean, what's your thoughts around that we do get our inflation under control? This, this sharp increase in interest rates scares a lot of people. You know, people cut back on their spending, you know, supply issues get sorted and, you know, we get back to, you know, a 2 3% RBA rate. I don't think that would crash the market in particular. Well, we're actually not at a 2 or 3% rate yet. We're going to get there tomorrow by the sounds of it. Um, but, yeah, it, it's you've, you've got rates which, once again, you've got a fragile market in the sense that you've seen the, or the impact of the interest rate rises, which have occurred already, which have gone from trivial levels. Now, I think that the Reserve Banks are going to, they'll put the rates up and then crash yeah. the economy and bring them back down again, okay? I don't think, again, because, I mean, as I mentioned, some central banks which are aware of the role of credit and aggregate demand, but most aren't. That includes the RBA, which I'm not having not a particularly high level of respect for compared to the Bank of England. They, they are, they're certainly the people setting the rates have got the overall belief that if you put the rates of interest up, the inflation rate will come down, okay? Now, that works for demand pull inflation when yeah. you've got, you know, a wage price spiral. We haven't got a wage price spiral. We've got wages running about five, wage increases running about 5% below the rate of inflation. Uh, People are saying it's also you know, markups by manufacturers, and markups would have risen during the lockdown because of all that monetary stimulus coming in. But what's happening now is really a breakdown on the supply chain. A lot of the costs are coming from COVID, from inability to get mm. supply out of China, and and we're going to see that getting worse over time. Most of the time, not better. That's we've had a, a we had a forty year reason for deflation, which is now disappearing. Okay. Sorry, on your comment on RBA, it was interesting. I was listening to the podcast uh, from The Guardian uh, the other day, political podcast, and I didn't realise that the board of directors at the RBA are actually government appointed. So I think or the current board or appointed by the Morrison government, and they don't necessarily have the qualifications um, that you would expect uh, board members of the RBA to have. Um, that was a general I was a bit surprised by that, and I've, I've got an article that I need to read to actually um, to do a bit of fact-checking and, and educate myself on this. Do you, uh, so I literally, literally, I'm just ra raising it because of what you mentioned earlier, that you don't have a lot of respect for them. Is that Have I got that right? Well, it, it's a crazy situation because I agree that they don't have any expertise in economics, but I think it would be worse mm. off if they did. Okay? You meant back to the, yeah, back to the training they have in economics. Um <laughs> They, they mm. believe in fantasies. The whole everything about like I told you, my first excursion, the first time I had any real awareness in the public was when I wrote debunking economics back in two thousand two thousand and one, uh, and and if you look at that you now the second edition of that book in two thousand and eleven, economic theory is is just full of logical holes and empirical nonsense, and if you're trained mm. in that stuff, you have a a map of the planet which is about as effective as the Ptolemaic map of the of the um, of the universe that put the earth at the center and the moon, you know, it, it, I call them Ptolemaic economists. 
and I'm happy to annoy them on that front uh, because they, they're, they're true believers in a false model. So would I want them making decisions about government policy? Not really. Uh, but at the same time, you then have people who are making it uh, who are, you know, business background, maybe a bureaucrat, uh, uh, favor, you know, friends of the Liberal Party, which is a major source of the current membership. Uh, you don't have any real expertise so, at all. So I was just involved. And you wouldn't have yeah, I mean, I think there's um, a review of the RBA sort of being talked about today as well, that, you know, something's going to happen there. So I think that's a, a watch this space. I mean, so just playing that out, Steve. So you think that the government's basically going to increase rates really fast and then crash the economy and then reduce uh, reduce rates after that. That, that would be your scenario one, m most likely. Yeah, that's my guess. Rates up, then rates up, economy so down, the rates down again afterwards. But they can't, they can't drop them as low as they have done because they're going to be dealing with an inflation rate of six to, in the five to ten percent range, and they're not going to go to zero interest rates with a yep. inflation so say, rate that, that high. So would that, so that in that scenario, would you expect a massive house price crash or you know property crash around the country? Because if you're saying that the serviceability of debt's our issue. Well, that's uh, going to be, you know, not as great because you are going to see some type of wage increase. You know, we, we can already see it. Worker mobility, people who, um, especially if you are in a little bit of debt stress, what are you going to do? You're going to look for another job. You're going to look for a better pay rise. You're going to swap employers, you know. You're going to try to, you know, improve yourself or take on a second job, et cetera. So, um, you know, in, in that scenario that interest rates do go up and then they come back down, do you, you know, do you imagine a, a massive repricing of Australian property or do you think that, if anything, it's stimulating demand because we're going back to lower interest rates. Well, again, if, if you've got people having falling real incomes, then their capacity to take out that deposit starts to evaporate. And what you're relying upon is people coming in with the deposit the banks accept. Now, the banks are willing to go down to the situation the Japanese did during their property bubble back in the 80s, when similar conversations were had, by the way. Um, then you will have you no know, 99-year mortgages. That yep. was the Japanese yep. trick to keep the bubble going. Okay, okay. Do you want that? Does that sound like a good idea? Uh, it didn't save the Japanese market no, over time. Just <laughs> okay, but that's the sort of bullshit mm. we get caught up in because we're trying but to sustain you, the unsustainable. And I just think, for Christ's sake, let property price. Well, you've, you've got you've got a young generation that can't afford to buy houses. Okay. You look mm. the level of rental has gone from uh, under under twenty percent to over thirty percent of the population. This is why we've been trying to promote home ownership. Yeah. For Christ's sake, realise the whole damn thing has been a failure. If the policy was to improve the level of home ownership, it's been an abject failure. And I'm just you know sick and tired of having to scream against people saying, "Oh, property prices always rise. Property prices oh. rising a good thing." Bullshit. So, so we're all on the same boat here, but I mean, the reality is, though, the system won't change. Like the yeah. system, you've already explained, you know, no parliament, no person in prime ministers want to go see a property crash on their watch. You know, they're not going, they don't really care about the first home buyer vote. Yeah. I mean, they don't really care about um, reducing investor demand yeah. because there's lots of money they make on investor demand through new builds. They make a fortune of money selling new property that's what first home buyer grants are yeah um the banking system the profits there the construction industry i mean it doesn't make sense to to be the person who's caused the property crash so they are going to go to our lengths you know we are going to get 40 uh 40 year mortgages you know it's just a matter of time um you know we are going to get access to super um you know for first home buyers i mean it's just come up at the last few elections um you know we are going to get changes to stamp duty that's a huge change for for the deposits i mean there's, there's, there's all these things that are going to happen. I mean, saying they shouldn't happen because of 
you know, reasons that make sense doesn't mean that the government's not just going to keep on putting another card on the table. Do you think that, you know, we've got a long way before they're running out of steam of ideas? Well, I think they have run out of ideas a long time ago. They've done nothing new apart from first-time owners' grants, so negative gearing and, and harvesting the rate of capital gains tax. I mean, what's the next, you know, uh, and what you've got is a, a populace which over time is getting sick of this, the younger people. Uh, you look at the young, the, the, you know, the, the frustration that young people feel they've got, you know, tertiary debt that their, their, grand, their parents didn't have. Uh, even before they get into the housing market, they've got you now hex debt to pay off. It's not as bad in Australia as it is in America and the UK, but still they've got their, they walk into the market with debt. Uh, then they're seeing their real wages are falling because inflation is running faster than wage rises at the moment. That's, that's a new phenomenon. Um, and they, they find that they, they can't get the deposit together and they, they're getting angry about the boomer generation, which I'm part of, but I, the only thing I the boomer about me is my taste in music. Um, and they're, they're getting politically, uh, you know, a protest against this situation. So you, you, what you're asking me is how mm. long can an unsustainable trend last? Now, maybe it might have another decade, but I've got a feeling in a decade's time the government's going to have other things to worry about apart from house prices. So recently you ran for the Senate in our federal election. I know you didn't get a seat, but I am interested in your um, your election or your policies because to quote your election pitch, house prices have to fall. Yep. <laughs> we have worked out how to do that without losing homeowner equity and while benefiting renters. And I would really love to hear about that. And um, and apologies that we didn't interview you before the election. You've got 5,000 more votes. <laughs> how, how can you... <laughs> Explain for us, because it sounds very, very clever mathematically how you can actually have prices fall without people losing equity. How, how can that happen? Well, this is, this is where you have to understand money creation. And by the way, don't ask a conventional economist about it. I haven't got a fucking clue about how money is created. Um, pardon me, my, I just, I've got, my frustration level has gone through the roof over all this stuff. Um, you know, that's how I, oh, that's I, right. My, I've my got a potty mouth, but, I, but I'm pretty good at uh, but yeah, there's two <laughs> ways to create money. The government can run a deficit or the banks can lend more than they take back in repayments. Those are the two fundamental ways you create money. Now, what we've had is an obsession on the policy side for the last 40, 50 years, pretty much, with reducing government debt. So therefore, government's been trying to run a surplus. Now, when a government runs a surplus, and actually Robert Menzies would have been a good guy to interpret or interview on this because he knew, he actually understood it, believe it or not. Menzies, when, in the 1961 <laughs> election, almost got turfed out because unemployment hit the, hit the unheard of level of 3.2%. Okay? He then rapidly abandoned the austerity he was caught up at the time and said he's going to outspend the Labor opposition. Labor, under Caldwell, said they're going to spend 100 million quid uh, you have a deficit of 120 million, and Menzies said, "I saw 100 million pounds." He said, "I'm going to run a deficit of 120 million, and that's going to give 120 million more pounds to Australians to spend, and that'll stimulate the economy." So he actually understood money creation after making a mistake about it in '61. So if government runs a deficit, it puts more money into your bank account through spending than it takes out in taxation. Banks, at the same time, put money in your account so long as you agree to having an identical amount of additional debt. So those are the two ways you can create it. Now, the, that's because of the obsession about reducing government debt, which was stupid, uh, that has meant that we've got far too much credit-based money and far too little fiat-based money. So what my proposal was what I call the modern debt jubilee, and I know it's got 
you know, zero chance of ever happening. Okay, but the idea is you could <laughs> give every every Australian adult a hundred thousand dollars, government created money, so that if you have housing debt, you must pay your debt down, or debt of any sort. So you therefore eliminate a hundred thousand dollars debt per person. That's pretty much a hundred percent of GDP. So you'd go from a debt level of one hundred and twenty percent to twenty percent of GDP in doing that. But the people without debt also get cash, which could be, in this case, government bonds, which would pay them an income stream. So the people who don't have debt get an income-earning bond flow. And what you've done, you haven't changed the amount of money in the economy. You've changed it from being mainly credit-backed to mainly fiat-backed. And then if you get, as a a couple, $200,000 in cash in your account or as a bond, okay, or a $200,000 fall in your debt level. You can cope with a $200,000 fall in your house price because your house price is notional. You've got to sell the house to get the cash. Your money in your bank account or a fall in your debt is real in the sense it actually happened. So it's feasible to do it, but I know it'll never happen. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. So you're saying that the government should carry debt instead of individual yeah. households. Go- go- government, but, but property prices are a national obsession in this country. I mean, because me yeah. there's a yeah, there's a whole um, psyche around this. So wouldn't the wealth effect or the negative impact on the wealth effect effectively kill your idea? I mean, not if people get because got, the wealth effect is one thing. It's spending out of the money you think you have if you put your house on the market like the bloke next door did two weeks ago. This is cash in your bank account. In fact, when I model it, I get an excessive stimulus, which is why I've said you should actually convert the money into into bonds rather than straight cash. But people have uh, excessive uh, money in their bank accounts right now. I mean, we've we've got more yeah. deposits than you know. I can't quote exactly since when, but all the banks are saying we've got a lot more cash in our banks today than we did because you know, yeah, before the COVID, for instance. During COVID, yeah. the deficits created the money in people's bank accounts. This it's is true. A in real but however, uh, yeah. No, no, it's true, but I want to talk about human behaviour here because actually now with some bunch of really negative headlines and, and uh, interest rate rises and threats of more, the consumer confidence is at an all-time low despite the fact we've got lots of money in a bank account and our properties are still worth a lot of money. So, you know what I mean? It, the perception is a reality. Well, perception has to have dollars People aren't before doing. it turns into reality. But, yeah, we, 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 we look where we've got a mess, okay? This, this is... This is 20 years of a policy I've been fighting against for that length of time. And people are saying, it's a mess, what do you want to do? I said, we shouldn't have gotten a mess in the first bloody place. I'm saying there is a relatively easy do way out Do you think, though, it, that we're just going to be we're in a a mess. kicking the can down the road? I mean, the reality is that they're, so, they're going to try to figure out ways to kick the can down the road. I mean, we've been saying the same things to 2008. I mean, I mean, are you still are. <laughs> making big predictions, I guess, that, you know, I, I understand that a, a property, pro- yeah, I've given up on Australian. The, the whole prediction thing. I mean, let's get this straight. I, I, Roy Robinson said when he pulled the bet on me, he said, "Look, the thing you're most famous for is your house price prediction." I'm sorry, you don't get half of the 7:30 report with with Kerry O'Brien. Um, yeah. 
being unknown. And I literally got one half of the program, 15 minutes worth, the day before I interviewed Kevin Rudd, a week before Kevin Rudd yeah. brought in the stimulus package that included doubling and trebling the first-time owner's grant. That's yeah. where I said the 40% fall. And the context was, Kerry asked me, uh, what's going to happen? And I said, well, when Japan's bubble burst back in 1990, house prices fell by 40%. Yeah. And I see no reason why Australia won't suffer the same fate. Now, I was wrong about that, obviously, because I didn't expect the extent to which the government would throw in to rescue the bubble. But it, was a, it wasn't a prediction. It was a, it was a throwaway line. And I've worn it ever since, courtesy also of that bet. But the reality yeah. is they're saying, this is a stupid way to run an economy. Yeah. The Japanese learned that back in 1990. They haven't done the same thing since. Yeah. House prices have fallen 70% in Japan. But in fact, if you want to look at an economy that's actually performing moderately well these days, the Japanese economy is one of your examples. What's happened to the government debt level? It's gone from 40% of GDP yeah. to 250% of GDP. And they can handle it because they run a trade surplus, which Australia so, I mean, normally the, does not issue do. that we're so these are the integrated issues I'd like to be thinking about rather than the bloody Australian obsession. Yeah, I mean, this is the, one of the, the problems I'm seeing at the moment. You know, you've got serial people who are just getting a lot of headlines because they're just jumping on the bandwagon and saying, well, hang on a sec, prices have fallen by 2% this month, so that's an annualised rate of 25% and we're going to crash this. And, you know, because it does get a lot of headlines. And unfortunately, it was sort of um, <laughs> that happened to you, I guess. You know, there's no context given to this and it's not really expanded out to individual markets. But, I mean, the government debt levels obviously is a big problem. I mean, you're saying Japan's not an issue because the trades have... But, I mean... It's not a big problem at all. No, that's frankly wrong. Pardon me jumping in. It's totally wrong. Government debt... Government debt's only a problem when you issue government debt in somebody else's money. If Australia government issues debts in American dollars, then you can be in trouble. But the accounting of government debt is that the government debt is dollar for dollar equal to the amount of money that's been created by the government. Okay. And government, so I'll, I'll give an analogy. This is, this is, I've written a, new, a little article coming out of Australian Quarterly, hopefully in a couple of months' time. And I explain what goes on when the government borrows money, borrows, inverted commas. So imagine the situation. I give you a million dollars. Okay? But I tell you, you can't spend it because you're holding on trust for Veronica. Okay? Then I tell you that I'll let you buy a million dollars worth of certificates off me on which I'll pay you 3% interest. Would you take the day of trade? Would you hang on to the million, which you can't spend, or would you spend that million buying the certificates, which I'll let you buy, and I'll then pay you 3%, 3%. on the certificates? Would you take the trade? Yeah, 3%. But you can't use the money otherwise. No, no, no. get $30,000 a year interest. I'll give can't you a million bucks, okay? That's going to earn <laughs> you 30000 a money. year. Huh? Yeah. Well, I've got no choice, have I? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. You take the trade. Of course trade. you do it. Now, would you, <laughs> exactly. would you, I'll just clarify again. So I give you, I give Chris a million, okay? And I say you yeah. can't spend like it, you're holding on trust for Veronica. Like then I say, I I'll let you I buy. invest it however I want. Huh? Sorry? Okay, so no, you can't invest it. You can I mean, only buy is, bonds. That's a rhetorical question. Yeah. That's that's what that's what actually happens. Okay, that's what actually happens. Right. The government runs a the government so runs who a deficit. gives the million and who gets it? Yeah. The government runs a deficit. Let's say it's a hundred billion dollars. Okay. That puts a hundred billion dollars into people's bank accounts. It also puts a yeah. hundred billion dollars into the reserve accounts of the banks. That's how the banks actually transfer the money to you. Now that hundred billion. Can't, you can't go at reserves and buy whatever you like. You can't go shopping with bank reserves. But the government then says, runs a treasury bond auction where they sell, we've got $100 billion worth of bonds here. 
yielding 3%. Would you like to buy them? And the banks say, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, because you're trading non-spendable, non, non non-tradable reserves for tradable interest income earning bonds. So the bonds mm. get bought. So the There's European never been debt crisis, that, you know, Italy's of the world mm. and the pigs and all those sort of things that happened back then. So Italy, yeah. okay. So, I mean, what all is, that, what currency so, does Italy use? The lira? Yeah. No, it euro. uses the euro. That's the mistake. Okay. If you want to issue, if you issue debt in a currency yeah. you don't create, you're up, you're up shit creek, without a paddle. Okay. If you issue debt in a currency you create. You so run, the, you, if run we the, you run the, the creek. Fifty percent okay. of our uh, an so extra fifty percent GDP debt, right? Um, which you could do. We could just do deficits for the next five, ten years, whatever, right? Um, and then we lose our AAA credit rating, and uh, other countries around the world don't want to lend to us. What would what would I mean? You can't uh, see that uh, being a problem. The AAA rating only matters when you want to borrow in non-Australian dollars. Okay. The government does not issue treasury bonds in American dollars. Hmm. Venezuela does. Okay. Argentina does. Zimbabwe does, because nobody would accept their currency. Okay. But when you issue in your own currency, you don't have a problem. Okay. And most of the debt, most of the foreign debt we've got, which is actually an issue, is actually owned by the yeah. banks. Okay. Not by the government. Okay. That's part of the whole whether they get their equity basis for lending. So uh, you know, the, the government government debt is not a problem. Like Australia's government debt is one half the global average. Okay, we're we're, we're saying, oh, dude, like bloody Chambers came out last week and said it's yeah. a trillion dollars. It'll take us decades to pay off a trillion dollars divided by the Australian economy. You get fifty percent of GDP. Look at the average for advanced countries. It's a hundred percent of GDP. Yeah. Look and that's at what America, I'm saying. When I was saying the government, I wasn't saying GDP. so much in Australia. I was thinking Japan, more globally, government. right? And you know, the amount of debt that has been created in governments around the world. I mean. Surely we could, you know, if, if banks are holding that and then the banks are worried about defaults um, or, you know, having those bonds having to get reissued and they're not going to want to, yields are rising, right? Um, so, you know, surely that can be a problem by just continuously produce government debt. Why would you keep lending it to a, com to a country that, you know, maybe it's got inflation issues and it's got unemployment problems and, you know, all sorts of stuff. I mean, you, you're just lending money for low yields. It's surely going to say, hang on a sec, I don't know if I want this risk. Would you have regarded England as a weak economy in the 19th no, and 18th well, centuries? <laughs> yeah, okay. They yeah. So this is assuming that we can just inflate our way out of the debt, though, right? And economic growth. Government debt. No, what, what I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm being exasperated here, so pardon my, my, length, my temper. Uh, but it is simply a matter of accounting that the government can create as much money mm. as it wants to create. The question whether it should create that money is the issue. Yeah. But if the capacity to do it is unlimited. Okay, government. The whole idea of a fiat currency is says by law, okay, and by law means by power. So the government can say we want to create this money, we're going to do it, and that's why we had a twenty three percent increase in in the, the, in the amount of money in deposit accounts during two thousand and twenty because the government ran a deficit that created that money, and if we hadn't done it, we would have gone down the tube because you know you couldn't have borrowed to cover your debts during COVID. We would have had a complete collapse. If it's yeah. on a total, you know, Austrian libertarian free market attitude, then the government was the only institution that could create money and it did in spades. And we had a boom. We're complaining about a boom at the time rather than a slump. So it, it, the practical world yeah. shows the governments can create as much money as they wish in their own currency. Yeah. Okay? It's yeah. a question of the impacts of that. Does it leak into imports? Okay. Okay. Which, which is what happened in 2008 with the rod stimulus.
but the capacity but to do it is, is potential unlimited. consequences down the line that you know may mean that that's not yes. the right idea. <laughs> yeah, there can be consequences, but 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 the consequences we've been wearing for the last yeah. fifty years is doing too little of it, not too much. Okay, we've had an obsession about reducing the level of government debt. Like I saw Chambers uh, claim in the, in his opening statement, we're carrying the highest level of debt relative GDP since World War II. Crap. What you've got to do is take a look at the Reserve Bank data uh, website. You'll find uh, occasional paper number eight, data from 1948, 1950 to, to, to 1997. The level of debt in that so, so, thing was 80% so of GDP So wouldn't this be one of the, the kickers down to kick the can down the road, right? We could have massive government stimulus. You could have... Uh, 5% deposit home loans, we can have changes to our stamp duty, we could have a massive infrastructure spending, we could, um, you know, we could do lots of big discounts for first home buyers, you know, win their vote. I mean, so if you're saying that the government's got lots of capacity to create government debt, isn't that just the perfect ingredients to kick the can down the road? It's, it's got it. The government could continue, the government could keep the house market yeah. alive with rising government debt, okay? Quite easily. You give home, give give home, like what they're doing rather with one of the Labor's policies. I think what was it to um, to yep, exactly. um, be, take spends, out a yep. one third mm -hmm. position in a house uh, with uh, give. Yeah, yeah. Now that's going to that's going to that could cause the bubble to keep on going because you have a million dollars to buy a house and the government says they're going to give you five hundred thousand. Yep. You pay one point five million for the property, one than one million. So yes, they can kick the can <laughs> down the road. Is it a good idea? No, it's fucking stupid. And pardon again my French, but you know, if, 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 I, if I watch a ridiculous policy going on for long so enough, I'm going to start saying it's ridiculous. Supply? Because, well, is the answer more supply? Sorry? Because the problem is that no, no, and why not? No, because, like again, even if you think think of the think like a conventional economist, okay, supply moves really, really slowly. Okay, if you're going to use the supply and demand mm. analysis, you'd like to have them both flexible. Now, one thing we know about housing, it ain't flexible. Mm. It's very hard to build new housing. It's very hard, hard to build it quickly. And therefore, most of the volatility comes on the demand side, not the supply side. Now, if you had a Singaporean approach, yep. we decide to give, yep. uh, create a lot of low-income mm. housing, as Singapore has done, and make that very acceptable, then yes, you could have sustainable low prices compared to incomes and have a populace which is quite happy about its housing situation, thanks very much, but not speculating and rising house prices. That's more the Singaporean situation. We've gone the opposite way. We want to have house prices rising indefinitely. Now, the only way to do that is to have debt rising and housing debt rising indefinitely. And that's the trap we've got ourselves caught in. I don't think it's a yeah, very sensible that trap. Ultimately, that's the only option. It's the only card they can play, right? You don't want to reverse a system. I mean, we haven't got another structural system for our economy, right? We... We're not like we're creating lots of innovation and jobs, etc. I mean, we, we we just don't have that economy, right? Like we we built this system. How are we going to jump off that train? Like to me, it's just yeah. And that's what David Llewellyn, David, I think it was from Macro Business, claimed yeah. that uh, he said his his nickname is Houses and Holes. <laughs> that's all the economy has to show for itself. You know, expensive houses and holes in the ground. Um, and we're making we're making a loss out of the gas the, the gas holes in the ground at the moment now, which is crazy. And we rely upon continuing coal exports to maintain the economy. We've we've turned ourselves into an underdeveloped economy with with a you know with the high income out of the out of the mining sector to some degree, but uh, not a, a, a t we, we, we we Australia's economy is now about as diversified as so Cambodia. Other than your other than your solution, exactly uh, which you admit will never happen. What else, what could be done? I mean, because we actually have 
And it's not even so much that prices are running away, even if we accept that the rate of ownership is going to fall, even if we accept that, we still have to house all the people that aren't going to own their own home. And we have a problem with that right at the moment. You know, we've got rents rising rapidly and that is partly, well, a lot of it is because of the vacancy. It's all because really the vacancy rate is um, is so low. Now, there's lots of reasons why the vacancy rate is low, but um, it makes me laugh. I was just listening to the 7.30 report tonight and they talk about, oh, we've got rising rents, you know, in some areas going up 20% in a year and the vacancy rate's low as if, as if that's mm. just adding to the woes. It's actually, that's the main driver. And the problem is, of course, then that people who really do, you know, low income earners at the bottom end of this, this spectrum, they are then pushed right out of the system by people who can afford to rent. Yeah. Um, and, and we've got a supply problem there as well, obviously, with the vacancy rates so low. And you say, and what you say is absolutely right, it takes a long time to, to create housing. And we haven't even started re you know, re-immigrating. Is that even a word? We haven't even gone back to, to our previous immigration levels. So there's got to be some other solutions. Have you come up with any? Well, one of the best ones is the government should run a large deficit and provide a lot of that. Yeah. Because the people who'd benefit mm. from a government deficit are the poor. I mean, we talked about not just differentiating earlier, and that's true. Uh, the rich don't need yeah. Medicare. They can afford to pay mm. their own way, you know, medical uh, costs. They, they don't need rental assistance, et cetera, et cetera. So you're running a low deficit. You, you're giving less money to the poor. And then you're complaining about, <laughs> uh, you know, they don't like the system right now. Well, yeah. well, you might have to wonder why. So you need rental assistance. You, you, need, you need government money going to poor people. Uh, which is where the deficit largely goes, and and that that we've you know everything we've been doing is reducing the amount of money being taken out of rich people's accounts yeah. through tax breaks and superannuation breaks, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and and ignoring the people at the bottom of the system. Now they're the ones who can't mm. afford to rent; they can't afford to buy, and uh, that is not actually a, a, no. a recipe for a cohesive society. So yes, we 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 have to be accept higher deficits. Yeah. But again, you get the same obsession about budget repair. That was not the thing from Chalmers' speech last week. So Labor is falling for the so, same I mean, I get, I get mainstream you know, economic bullshit that the Liberal Party got, fell yeah, for. People struggling to rent. You know, people who um you know stuck. But solution, let's say, build more housing. I mean, where we got the capacity in our economy to build this stuff, right? We want to build roads. We want to build trains. We want to build um you know office buildings um we want to build houses because we you know we've got a demographic and immigration etc um how are we actually going to we've already got building prices and building materials going through the roof and mm -hmm. labor shortages etc so how can we actually sustain that long term you know and and the problem's so big yeah yeah well, i mean we should have been yeah we, it's a problem of, of deindustrialization in a large way like I, I was involved in the accord move, the accord structure of the Australian government back under Hawke and Keating, and the whole idea of that and designing it was that it was going to be yeah. effectively like a Nordic country uh, industrial development policy where you brought labour and 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 work and uh, management yeah. and the government together to try to build a, a strong industrial base, and it got taken over by the economists in the Treasury in particular, but also in the Department of Trade where I worked uh, as a as a wage restraint. Yeah. And then wage rises went across to superannuation instead. And that was part of the whole deflationary trend. Uh, but that yeah, meant we said, rather than building an industrial economy, we built a financialized economy. And uh, one of my favorite lines from Karl Marx was talk about centralization. Uh, the, the circumstances often allow the money lenders, the, the, the financial institutions and the, and the money lenders and hawkers around them to take over industrial capitalism 
periodically, and this lot know nothing about it and should have nothing to do with it. Now, this is the this is we, we you know didn't read that particular line from Carl 150 years ago, and we've been handing over the economy to the financial sector ever since, and we've mm. deindustrialized. We've done the opposite of what the accord was supposed to achieve, and we now have an economy which can't produce its local you know a lot of what yep. we need mm. can no longer be made locally. We don't have the skill level. Okay, we've denigrated the skills of mm. the university sector. And what, as what's well. your attitudes of yeah, we're you know, in deep dirt downturns or recessions that are sort of almost uh, the wealthy actually like them. You know, the the attitude is is that it's just a transfer of wealth from um, you know the people who have to sell to the people who don't have to sell and the people who've got cash that can buy assets. And you know, do you see that that those sort of things are going to be playing out in any type of downturn? You know, if the people who are in trouble now, right? Let's say there's there's pockets of Australia that you know do get big price balls and you know, a lot of people have to sell do you just see that people are just going to to buy those things up and and take advantage of these situations yeah but you, you get involved in the dynamics of a debt deflation then and that's where you don't want to end up because uh, uh the irving fisher was the expert on this during the great depression he didn't see it coming he in fact encouraged it to happen but then in the aftermath what he said was the he, he called the, he, he mentioned a paradox i call it fisher's paradox he said the more debtors pay the more they owe if you have a period of of uh, of of, fall, of, of, def of falling prices with high levels of debt, then as you pay the debt down, the value of the currency increases at the same time. They end up paying a lower number of dollars, but the dollars actually cost more in terms of real output. So you, this is why a, a property yep. crash is so deadly, because you have this cascading effect on driving the prices down as well. So. The only way out of it really is, is to set a sensible government spending, knowing that the government spending is creating money and then slowing that process down. Uh, but, you know, again, we're asking how do you get out of a mess we should never have got into in the first place? So the answer to that seems to be not easily and probably not at all by the sounds of it. Um, now that, you know, you're obviously um, a maverick in many ways. You you don't mind at all being disagreed with or or unpopular in terms of your views, um, and that's great. Uh, you know, we, we encourage that on the elephant in the room because we obviously want to talk about the elephants in the room. What what is, you know, how yeah. how do you not just give up? Because it must be a bit demoralising if you see things so clearly and the establishment is still you're peddling the same um, beliefs and, and uh, systems and the, the, the whole systemic structure of how everything operates is still functioning in very much the way that you've, you've seen the, the error of. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the biggest is actually in climate change rather than house mm. prices. Okay. Uh, but that, that, yeah, when I saw it, I mean, the, the only way I can be wrong about the economic impact of climate change is economists are <laughs> yeah. right and that means that the climate is just the weather okay and a roof will protect you from climate change okay although i if do that's think true then i'm going to be wrong we've so had this i'm sort of rapid change and, and about face of opinions you know in a, in a lot of areas by a lot of people only in the face of our what the the weather that we have experienced in this country over the last few years so it and, and our last election i think certainly played out and showed that finally people are starting to recognise 
oh, it's here. Um, climate change isn't something in the future anymore. It's happening now. So perhaps economists might also, I mean, look, I, you know, we, mm. uh, at our interview with Nikki Hatley, who is an economist who specialises in this area, uh, was released this week. And obviously I say this week as in when we're interviewing you as opposed to when we're releasing this episode. So there must be, a, um, she's said that, told me that she'd been working in this area for 15 years. So she's not a newbie to it, but there must be some new converts amongst the economists to believe in climate change? I, 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 you know what I'd rather do with economists? I'd rather establish a universal yeah. basic income, pay them all <laughs> that and get them to go and work in kindergartens. But that'd be, uh, but <laughs> only as serving food, not actually teaching, uh, because they do less damage. Um, so yeah, they'll, they'll be the last ones to admit they got it wrong. Like I've been, I'll give you an idea of how insane their work is. There's a, a paper that came out last year where a bunch of economists said, what is going to be the impact of losing various tipping points in the economy, at the, in the ecology, on the economy? So the tipping points they included oh. was losing Arctic summer sea ice. We're about a decade or <laughs> at most two decades from that going completely. Losing Greenland, losing the West Antarctic ice shelf, losing the Amazon rainforest, losing the Gulf Stream, releasing the uh, methane and carbon dioxide stored in the uh, permafrost, releasing the methane stored in what are called ocean methane hydrates on the floor of the ocean bed, and for good measure, losing an Indian monsoon. They reckon a whole lot would reduce global GDP by 1.4%. Oh, I look, you know. That is insane. <laughs> okay? If those things happen, so it's goodbye and goodbye that's survivability that's of the, the planet. The reality is you, you can't have hope okay. against the Australian they, they property market. I've just spoken about that and the okay. issues of, of changing the system. But you know, do you wonder, I mean, the world is really going to change. I mean, you're spending a lot of time in Nordic countries now, I believe, and, yeah, you, know, you can see that it's changing places like that, but then you see the, the laggards and the, the different, like Australia. Um, so do you think that, you know, in, in any time frame that, that we can turn that ship around or, you know? Well, I think we're going to realise hmm. that we've already hit the iceberg, okay? How do you yeah. turn the ship around after you've collided with the iceberg? Slightly more difficult than turning before you hit it. So that's my, my worry, that we should have been doing... Like, the Limits to Growth was published 50 years ago, this year, pretty much this month. And if we'd yeah, taken sure. this warning seriously, we could have done market-based ways to avoid... Um, mm. yeah, the, plus, also, can, we needed controls on population and a range of other policies. But it would have been feasible. Now, economists, in particular William Nordhaus, played the major role in denigrating that study and saying don't take it seriously and rubbishing it. But if you look at the data and see just how well of their predictions worn out from 72 to now, they fit the data extremely well. There's an Australian economist, an engineer called Graham Turner, who's done two studies of that. There's an American financier, uh, Gaia Henderson, who's also done recent mm. checking. So the limits of growth were right. Now, they said take evasive action 50 years ago. Economists said full steam ahead 50 years ago. We've gone full steam ahead. So we're, gonna, we're now waking up to it by running into things like the, the bushfires, like the floods in Sydney, etc., uh, etc. Et this, this is the consequence of ignoring those warnings. Now, when you then try to turn around, when you've ignored those warnings, it's extremely hard and you don't have the infrastructure set up for it to begin with. We have 120-metre yachts for Jeff Bezos parked in a canal not far from where I live these days. We don't have ships that are going to be able to put mirrors on the surface of the uh, Arctic and reflect that sunlight back that we're now absorbing. 
So it's an incredibly difficult struggle. And, and that's, again, I said economists have played a huge role in encouraging us to ignore those issues. So we didn't ask and you for a property Dumbo, but I think we'll use that we as, your, uh, as your Dumbo story. Unless you've got an individual story <laughs> yes. about someone who's made a big mistake around property, you probably believe anyone who's bought property is a Dumbo. Um, but, uh, yeah, have you got a story for us or <laughs> should we use that one? Not in property. I mean, I, um, um, I've, I've never bought property as a speculation. I've always bought it to live in. So um, I, I don't, I mean, my mistake, if I want to even mistake my wife, then my first wife wanted me to invest in how, uh, take by investment property in 1994. And I said, that's 1995. And I said, no, because housing is in the bubble. And I the refused to then. write a bubble. <laughs> yeah. Well, I should have written the bubble. Would have made more money out of that than the bonds that I got us to buy instead. We made money out of bonds as well because I said, interest rates are going to fall. I'm happy to do that speculation. They fell from 6% to 2% while we held the bonds, so I made money out of that, but trivial compared to buying an investment property And do you think that's a worry the about the, the you know, talking about the system in a bubble. way that, you know, pulling out charts and saying, you know, you know debt to income is really high, and, you know, we've got biggest debt in the world and we've got this, you know, it shouldn't be, shouldn't have this system, we should get rid of negative gearing. What you end up creating is a property bear, right? And, you know, we see them, you know, quite regularly, they come to us, you know, we I do a lot with Martin North, et cetera, um, who's, yeah. you know, got a lot of bears in his little armor, armory. Um, and, um, you know, and what ends up happening is they build these beliefs and the, the, the belief is that, you know, that the system's going to change and then they're going to, and a lot of them want the system to change so they can buy something. You know, they want security, they want stability, they want a house for their family. Um, and, and so, you know, do you think that's one of the, the dangers of, you know, that mm. thinking is that you end up getting in this camp and then confirmation bias kicks in and then all of a sudden you've just wasted, you know, 10, 15 years of your life waiting for something that unlikely is never going to happen. Yeah, well, I, I've, I was never invested in property to begin with, okay, uh, both emotionally and, and, and financially. So that comment, I mean, I, what I was trying to warn about when I, when I was mm. sent up by the property lobby, I, I was warning about a global financial crisis. Okay? I was saying levels, my trigger was back in 2005, December 2005, I was asked to be an expert witness on a predatory lending case where a guy had been given six consecutive yep. loans by I won't mention the name, but uh, by a, a non-bank lender after being turned down quite rightly by all the banks for a, his, he should have lost his house. Instead, he ended up with yeah. a debt of about 300000 on a property initially owed 150000 on. And I came in and, and my role was as an mm. expert, you're actually employed by the court, not by the, you're paid by the client, but you're employed by the court. And so I made this throwaway line saying debt to GDP ratio has been rising exponentially. And I knew I couldn't get away with hyperbole, so I checked the data and I found it was correct, okay? The deadfalls had been rising exponentially. And I said, this can't go on. When the break occurs, there's mm. probably going to be a financial crisis. Somebody has to warn about it. I'm probably that somebody. Now, if I'd known how the property yeah. lobby would use that line about <laughs> property, I would have declined right. to answer Kerry's question because I've been denigrated and satirised about being a property bearer got it yeah. wrong. Fuck property. I was into bad economic policy and trying to turn it around, saying a crisis is coming, we have to do something about it. That warning got completely ignored in Australia, so I got sent up as a property bear over there. In the rest of the world, yeah, they know that yeah, I yeah, worked absolutely. on the potential for a financial crisis and I got it right. Okay, So that pisses me off, and I'm happy to say it in this language now. So Australians can continue obsessing about property, the government can continue inflating the bubble. It's a bad way to run an economy when, not if, we hit what's going to happen with the, the global financial crisis, we're probably the yep. world's worst yep. prepared economy 
to be self-sufficient and to you stop using fossil fuels. You know what's interesting Steve, and I don't disagree with you, except for the fact that you are a property bear. <laughs> you know, it's like, so... <laughs> no, okay, people ask about things on property. It's, it's, initially I said it will fall, okay, not realising the extent to which the government would dive in and do the rescue. But if you look at what I wrote immediately after the... Um, um, the um, doubling and trebling of the first home grant by 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 Rudd. My my mm. debt deflation entry is saying was I call it a subprime light. Yeah. Okay? We're doing subprime. Is this um, the right I, time to do subprime? I, okay. Is this really the life we want to build, the economy we want to live in, you know, and is it sustainable long term? And I, I get all your arguments on, on why not. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we, we need an economy which can make its yeah. own energy systems, mm. which can make its own trains for God's sake. Yeah. Yeah. Or ferries. And where do we get those made and will they work? No. Okay. So with the level of you look look at the craziness. You, you can't you can't get a, a ferry up the Parramatta River because yeah. the people on the top of the are gonna get this knocked off when yeah. they go under bridges. <laughs> if they'd been made in Australia, I don't think that mistake would have been made. So all yeah. this outsourcing, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, has been a the mirror image of this obsession yeah, no, of property. Thanks so much for your time, Steve. We really appreciate you coming on and um, enjoy the rest of your time in Europe. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.